First Corinthians seven, we left off at verse 17. Paul has begun to address address issues that the church wrote to him about. So he said in seven one now concerning the things of which you wrote me and he's begun to start answering some questions about marriage. They had all different types of ideas. It seems like there were some weird ideas here in the church. Now that they're saved, is it okay if they're married to an unsaved person? Should there be sexual relations within marriage? Should they be celibate? Is it more spiritual to be celibate? So they were working through all these kind of different issues. And Paul comes to verse 17, which really kind of becomes a theme for the chapter. And he says this, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain or direct in all the churches. Uh, And if you just skip down a little bit, in verse 20, he's going to say something similar. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And then you skip down in verse 24. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state which he was called. So his emphasis here is going to be very clear. Paul He had instructed these Corinthians in general to stay in their marriages if they could, not to break break them up or stay in that single state if God had given them that gift. But he's going to expand that now and say it's his general rule or directive in every church to these, these regular believers who are getting saved to remain in their everyday life circumstances. Paul Again, at the end of the verse says, so I ordain in all the churches. This wasn't just something specific for Corinth. Paul is saying, what I'm saying to you here, I say to believers everywhere. Um, one thing I think is probably hard for us to come to grips with is the, the radical kind of spiritual life that was happening in that early church, particularly with cultural kind of caste systems for people for men, for women, for slaves. And when the gospel came in and radically changed some of those ideas, it, it culturally threw people for a loop. They were trying to figure everything out. Okay, so if I'm new in Jesus, there, there was all types of pressure to just change so, social circumstances, change my life in some way, change my marriage, change how I am. And what Paul constantly kind of had to do was, no, no, no. <laughs> You could follow Jesus right where you are and who you are. You don't don't have to do any specific or special thing. And he's going to give us a couple examples of that. But it's I think it's kind of hard for us to sometimes realize what that what that pressure was like. So what Paul wants to say is, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. I love the language there. Those are. Those are Bible words and certainly Christian words, but to walk and to be called, they're wonderful expressions. And Paul wants everybody to know, you don't have to change some outward circumstance in your life to start following Jesus. If God has called you, have you had a calling in your life? The call of God for Paul was pretty radical. And it was basically just God speaking into their life. The minute God becomes real in your life, everything changes. All the circumstances of your life don't immediately change. 
But reality has changed. The creator has stepped in, and now things are different. And all of us, if we're followers of Jesus, at some point, there's a place where he called us. He called us personally to follow him. You could, you could talk to all those disciples, and they would go back to those moments, whether it was Peter on the shore, whether it was Matthew at the tax booth, whether it was Nathaniel under the tree, where, whoever they were, wherever they were to be called by Jesus, that was new. And then what they were called to do was to walk with him. Again, simple picture, but even in our common life, if you go for a walk with somebody, that's a show of friendship, of trust, of companionship, of intimacy. Two people walking, taking a walk, talking. Those people have a relationship, tells you something. And what we do is we walk with Jesus. We follow him where he's going. We learn from him. We listen to him. We don't make excuses to escape those two things. We hit the disciples for some, some things that they did that were mistakes. And it's true, they made mistakes. But the big thing I think you can always say about those guys is even though they were imperfect, when Jesus came into their life, they dropped everything to follow him. Everything. They were, they were willing to put it all behind them and follow Jesus and have their mistakes be corrected. And they continued to follow him. There were others who made mistakes, who didn't put their hand to the plow without looking back, who wanted to follow Jesus at times where Jesus called them and they had excuses as to why they couldn't follow him then. There were people that Jesus healed miraculously and he never pressures them to follow him because of their choice. And many didn't. They just went on their way. They didn't walk with him or after him. And I think it's important to see that God has distributed, he says here, Paul, to each one. He's put all of us in a certain set of circumstances in our lives. It doesn't mean we're forever locked into those circumstances, but it means he calls us somewhere in some position. Certainly, Paul had to change his circumstances as a Pharisee. He couldn't be a Pharisee still and who Christ had called him to be. But for all of us, God has put us in the place that we're in, in the particular environment where we're in, on purpose. He tells us in the book of Acts that he's chosen the bounds, the times, the seasons of our lives so that we might find our way toward him. All of us are in the best possible place for some reason to find our way toward him, even though he's not far from any one of us. And then when he calls us and we begin to walk with him, we should start right where we are. There's nothing else that needs to immediately happen. We begin to follow him right there. And sometimes there's this pressure that there's something that needs to happen first. Or maybe if, if I do this thing, then I'll really start to follow Jesus. If I can get out of my job and then do full-time ministry, then I'll really be following Jesus. Or, you know, I want to be a missionary. If I could just get out of America and go somewhere, then I'll start following Jesus. And the person's not witnessing to anybody here. Why are you going to be somebody fundamentally different in a change of scenery? No, right where we are, 
right where he called us. This is, this is where he found us. Paul's saying, God has distributed each one. You're all unique people. Everybody has a, a unique background story, but God called you. And now you're supposed to walk with them right where you are. And this is what I tell every church, everybody. And now he's going to bring up a couple examples to kind of lock in this idea and further illustrate this point for them. Certainly these are things I'm sure he answered a lot. He says in 18, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So one of the first things Paul brings up is, to illustrate the point, he brings in the idea of circumcision. And he says whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, that seems weird, but apparently they did have their own medical procedures, like its own type of cosmetic surgery where that could happen in that day. So there was a literal part to it. But I think more so what Paul is speaking about is that Jew-Gentile thing that was always kind of happening in the church. Do I got to become a Jew now to really follow Jesus if I'm a Gentile become circumcised? Or do I got to give up all of that stuff and become like a totally Gentile person to follow Jesus. What There was this conflict that was constantly happening, book of Acts, chapter 15. It was a huge issue in the early church. And what Paul is saying here is, you don't actually need to do anything. <laughs> Where God called you, start to walk with them. If you were a Jew when he called you, don't try to be something else. Just follow him right where you are. If you were a Gentile when he called you, you don't have to be something else first. Start to follow Jesus and keep his commandments right now where you're at. You don't have to be circumcised, per se, to do that. Now, some of you who are smart Bible people, you're like, but didn't Paul have Timothy get circumcised in Acts chapter 16, verse 13? Yes, he did. But that wasn't, again, it was, it was not for spiritual reasons. It was for practical reasons. They were going to go witness. He knew it would open up doors for Timothy to share the gospel easier with Jewish people. It, it wasn't, hey, Timothy, you can't really follow Jesus until you get this done. Or, hey, Timothy, you'll be a more spiritual person if you do this. It was just, this is going to make it easier for you to share the message if you want to. And Timothy did. So Paul fought tooth and nail against the idea that this procedure actually made you more spiritual in life. He, that, he constantly had to battle against that idea. You didn't need to do this thing to begin to follow Jesus. And to be very clear about that, notice what Paul says again in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. That would be a horror for a Jew to hear in Paul's day. It might have been a little easier for some of these, uh, maybe most, seems Corinth probably mostly Gentiles, but maybe a little easier for them. But he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. This, this does not add some spiritual benefit to you that you won't have outside of this because Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. It doesn't matter because there's no direct commandment from Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't say you have to do this. So Paul was not saying they had to do that. Your job is to follow the God who called you. And he's not telling everybody they need to go get circumcised or uncircumcised. Saying, keep my commandments right where you are. And Paul wants to be clear that the real spiritual effect in our life is not whether they got this procedure done, but whether they actually obeyed the things that Christ told them to do right where they were in life. Sometimes we can treat spirituality like it's a magic thing. Like, like if I could do this one right thing, then all of a sudden it's all going to click. And it's all going to get easy and I'm going to be super spiritual and everything's going to be good. There's no magic out there. It's just the same things there's always been, faith and obedience, following Jesus and hearing what he says, humbling ourselves because we're imperfect and we all make mistakes along the way, but I just abide with him and he works with me because he's patient and good. And, and what Paul wants to know or wants these people to know is, listen, 20, let each one of you remain in the same calling where he was called, right where God called you. Right where he found you. You don't got to do something special. Just follow him and keep his commands. Where are you right now? You don't need something spiritual to happen first before you do what God wants you to do in life. It might not look super flashy, but we do follow a Savior who lived most of his earthly life in a carpenter's shop a town that nobody really knew about for 30 years. He did a bunch of things that aren't written down and we don't know anything about. And he followed his father right where he was and where he was supposed to be. And when his father wanted to expand those things, he did. But he didn't have to do something special first. We don't need a big change of circumstance. We need to follow him right where we're at. Now he's going to add on to this in verse 21. He said, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men, brethren. Let each one remain with God in that state where he was called. Paul's going to take the matter further now, which I think is important. Marriage that he's talked about and circumcision, they're issues of choice, per se. Paul wants to be clear that this principle is the same even when you don't have a choice about certain things in life. A slave did not have a choice, per se, whether they were a slave, for the most part. Some of them, you could sell your services to pay off a debt for a while. But for the most part, slaves didn't have a choice. So Paul now wants to speak to slaves, no doubt, because there were many slaves that were getting saved. They were hearing the gospel. They were responding. Again, it, it was usually not the upper echelon. It was the poor those who were in the highways and byways who were hearing the gospel and receiving that, many of them being slaves. And no doubt many of them feared, 
okay, God called me, but how can I actually fulfill God's calling if I'm in circumstances that I can't control? How can I truly please and serve him if I'm a slave? Am I trapped in this position? Am I unable to serve and please God because of this uncontrolled circumstance? Graciously, Paul says to them, notice again, do not be concerned about it. That means not they shouldn't be worried that they're in difficult circumstances per se. Don't be worried that you can't please God now or you can't serve him or God called you, but you can't do what he called you to do. No, he knows where you are. He knows who you are. He knows the circumstances that you're in. Don't let it trouble you. Now, to add this in, he says, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Rather is by all means use it. The idea is if you can become a free person, great. Then become a free person. Some slaves could work for a certain amount of time. Some could make money and purchase their own freedom. There's ways that you could be freed from your slavery. He said, if that's an option for you, I'm not saying don't do it. He said, please go ahead, be free. But he says, use it, but don't be free and then not serve God. Use it in the same way. Be a servant of his. Christ calls you while a slave, while in circumstances out of your control, serve him there in faithful obedience. The Christian message gave purpose to a person even in the worst of circumstances. Outside of Christ, there was no message for the slave. There was no hope there. But when you're saved, you realize, no, Lord, even in difficulty, my life has purpose. I'm tied to something larger, to your kingdom. And, you know, you can think of somebody like Joseph, who was sold by his own brothers, who's a slave, and then even as a slave, accused wrongly and thrown into prison. And you could look at his life and say, man, how is he serving God? And then you could look at his brothers who are free, but they're liars and indirect murderers and struggling with guilt. I'd rather be Joseph in the end. He didn't seem quite as free, but he was serving the Lord. God was with him and showed him favor. Every circumstance and situation that he was in. And the key is, am I walking with the Lord there? Because what Paul says is, 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Now listen, if God wants to set you free, he could do that in a second. You're his. And you're free to follow him. If you're a nation of slaves, he could set you free. He's already done that. Proven it. You are under his purposes. And nobody can take that away from you. He can do what he wants with our life. And he says, on the other side of the coin, he who's called while free is Christ's slave. The person who's free isn't actually free. Just because I'm not under slavery doesn't mean that my life is now free to use as I want. That's tough for Americans to think about because we're all about freedom for ourselves. But he says, the Christian who's free, you're not actually free to live apart from God. Or apart from his will, 
you can do that, but in his sight, you're not really free to do that. You are his slave. You've been purchased by him. We like to live to ourselves. It's hard for us to think about that. But the reality is, in this day and age, there are a whole lot of free Christians that were dying horrible deaths, even worse than those of slaves, because they were martyrs, witnesses for Jesus Christ, his slaves, even in their freedom, doing his will, giving their lives to him, walking with him right where, they, right where he called them. He says, even if you're a free man, you're still Christ's slave. There isn't, there isn't some position, whether we're in circumstances out of our control or in our control, where our life is ours to use as we wish. We're his either way. My life is his one way or another. And to, to emphasize that point, Paul says in 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. He brings them all the way back to 620 and the fact that the ownership of our lives is not ours. Again, he bought me with a price. And if I say my life is my own, then I am not bought by him, which means I don't have any of the hope that he promises me. Either on my own outside of Christ or I'm purchased by him and I'm not my own anymore. That's, those are the two positions I can stand in. I can be a person who is Christ's or I can be a person who is their own. So what he says is, you remember, you were bought with a price. You're his either way. He's the owner of our lives. He's our master. We're his. And we're not to be mastered by others then, physically, mentally, spiritually. Nobody else is supposed to be running my life. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul would say a similar thing, beginning in verse 5. He said, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service, as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. The motive is the same either way, Paul's saying. My motive in life, whether I'm a slave or free, is I'm doing everything as unto the Lord, not serving men, serving him. Because I'm his. No matter where he finds me, he called me, he knew my circumstances, and the Christian has the hope that there is meaning in every single circumstance in their life. It doesn't mean every circumstance is easy, but what it means is I have meaning in every single circumstance of my life. Now, take God out of that equation. It doesn't change the circumstance. It could be a hardship like slavery. It could be a disease. It could be a difficulty in the world. We got brothers and sisters in Christ that live in really difficult countries to live in. And there's all different circumstances, but the motive is the same all the way through. I'm his either way. We didn't choose where we're at. If we have freedoms ourselves, we're still Christ's slave. That's our battle to do everything as unto him. If there's circumstances that are out of control, I understand I'm still Christ's. 
and my life is meaningful to him. And what I should do, brethren, he says in 24, emphasizing this again. He's just pushing it in, summing it up. Brethren, this is for all of us. Let each one remain with God in that state which he was called. That's my goal. Remain with God. We could say abide with him. Be where I am with God. Not forgetting him. Not in rebellion to him. Not walking primary and having him secondary. In every scenario, realizing, Lord, I'm here with you. I'm walking with you. You're the one who's called me. Whether I'm a slave or a martyr or a free man, if I'm walking anywhere on the face of the earth, and I'm yours, I want to remain with God. And I can remain with God or I can be on my own. If I was a Roman slave in Paul's day, but with God, it would be better than being a worldly American in our day with freedom without God. With God changes everything. And I want to remain with God. Paul says, that's, that's what I want you to do. You just stay with God right where you're at. Keep his commandments. Follow him. He knows who you are. Called you right where you are. You don't have to do something first. You can follow him right here, right now. Now he's going to build on that in the context of some of the questions they've been asking, though the principle remains underlying. Now concerning virgins, which is unmarried, really the word can go men and women. He says, I have no commandment from the Lord. Admits, I don't have a direct command of Jesus Christ in relation to this. Yet I give my judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Paul admits, I don't have a clear command from Jesus Christ, but I'm going to give advice here. And he says, God has mercifully made him a trustworthy source in such matters. My advice has been all right because of the Spirit of God. He's given me mercy to give decent advice here to folks. So here's what he says. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. It is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loose. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So Paul, he's given his advice here. Unmarried men and women, what do they do here? And I think it's important, we get the, we're going to get the section confused if we don't see Paul's pastoral heart in this matter. What he's doing is, he's not commanding singleness or marriage here. He knows that he, he can't command them individually what to do. This is something, the type of scenario that every single believer needs to make a choice with the Lord themselves as they follow him. But what he's seeking to do is, I'm going to give you serious considerations. As you make the choice, in wisdom that God has given me, I can give you things to think about that help you weigh out the choice you make yourselves. So... If you just read it kind of on its own, you can think Paul's saying, just be single, don't get married. That's not what he's doing. He repeats a number of times. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, I'm a pastor. As a pastoral person, as an elder in the church, 
God has given me mercy. I don't have a direct command for you here, but I want to give you things to think about as you make this choice. So to those virgins, what I want to say first is you should take into consideration, he says, the, the time is short that they have. He's going to go on later. But it's good because of the present distress that you're in. And there's arguments as to what Paul means by the present distress. Was there something literally happened in Corinth right then? It seems like historically kind of the tide was changing towards Christians. It was becoming more negative from Rome. Not sure. Or is Paul talking about just the second coming of Christ and knowing there's difficult days for Christians ahead? If I'm going to guess, I would probably say Paul's thinking more about what Christians are going to have to face in the world. It seems like Corinth was actually kind of doing well. They were bragging about how well they were doing, and materially it seems like they were doing fairly well. So it doesn't seem from the context that there was immediately something happening in the city then. So what Paul is saying is, hey, look, we're living in a world that is not easy for Christians. So if you're going to make the decision to marry another person, you should take into consideration the present distress. So it's good for a man to remain as he is. You, know, you want to serve the Lord really in any context. If we're going to follow after him, you have to measure out, hey, is this the right context to get into a relationship and move forward in? Um, you do that really with any kind of life. Am I going to marry this individual? This is what they do. This is what their life is. You know, people have made decisions, missionaries all over the world. Hey, we're going to a very dangerous area. Should I go there myself? Should I go there with a spouse? And different missionaries have made different decisions. Got to get on a boat for nine months and go somewhere else in the world. Or we're going to leave America in this context and go to a more dangerous context. This is what the Lord's calling me to do. Do I bring somebody else into that? Those are difficult scenarios. And for every Christian to have to think, okay, if I'm marrying somebody, I'm bringing them into my life. And brave men and women have done that together, and they serve the Lord that way. And others have said, you know what, no, it's a better thing because of the world we live in for me to serve the Lord single. Paul says you need to take that into consideration. It's one of the things he wants to put in their mind. It'll be easier to do that if you remain as you are. He also says, are you bound to a wife? Are you already married? Do not seek to be loose. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So, hey, what situation are you in? He's saying, don't seek those things then, particularly. Seeking marriage in the sense of being bent on it. Don't make it your primary thing. Paul doesn't say, do not find a wife. The Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. He's saying, don't make it the thing you're seeking. We know scriptures tell us, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And one of the things that happens, sadly, is people who get bent on seeking a wife or a husband they really stop seeking God and they start seeking that thing. It doesn't have to be a relationship, but it happens largely with relationships. And what Paul's, I think, exhortation here is, here's another thing I can tell you to think about. Seek God. And let him bring along the thing you need, if you need it. But you make your primary focus him. What are, what are we really hunting for? 
Am I going to Bible college because I really want knowledge, or am I hoping it's bridal college for me? <laughs> right? What, what am I really? Am I going to this prayer meeting because I want to pray, or am I just seeing what type of people pray at the prayer meeting? What's my actual aim? I think Paul's exhortation is, hey, you need to seek the Lord. And they needed the Lord. It wasn't a joke at all for them. They needed him in a very real way. And now he continues that. He wants to continue that kind of seek God first exhortation. So in 29, he'll say, but this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. So, again, in the context, he started saying, hey, don't seek these other things. He says, if you do marry, you haven't sinned. You're fine. If the virgin marries, that's totally great. She hasn't sinned. You're going to have some difficulty in the flesh, though. You're going to have some hardship. So, Listen, brethren, understand the time is short. We have a little bit of time to serve the Lord and then things are going to change. And he, he kind of describes our regular lives. He talks about marriage, those who are married to live as if they had no wives or no husbands, those who weep as if they weren't weeping, those who rejoice as if they weren't rejoicing. All these things are they're the things that are normal parts of life, marriage difficulty, things that would make us cry, rejoicing, things that make us happy, making a living, commerce, trading, the things that we have to do in the normal life to provide, and living in the world, the world's passing away. This is kind of normal life. Good things happen, difficult things happen. We build relationships. We do our work. We live in this world. And what Paul says is, understand that time is short. We're there for time. The Greek is kairos. The idea is it's not just the chronological version. It's the season. The way this world is running is short. The season's going to be over. Spring's almost over. Right? The season, the way, the way things are here, they're shifting. The world is passing away, and you and I are passing through. So we need to be moderate in the way that we're interacting with the world. We should be people who are walking through the world with something weightier on our mind. Not that we're not understanding of the things that happen around us, but we understand there's something bigger that we're tied to. Moderation, Paul says, in all things. We can't be used by the world. We're in it to use the world. But it can't become the master of us. The time is short. We're supposed to be like those who are in the world, not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. And we're passing through. F.W. Borum, in his book, The Nest of Spears, he writes about Sir George Burns. And Sir George Burns was the founder of a steamship company that kind of pioneered transatlantic shipping. So... He did very well for himself in his day and age as a businessman, very successful. But he was a believer, and he wrote in his journal at 93 years old, he said this, Mine has been a highly prosperous career, 
and I am most thankful for it. But in looking back as I do now, this reflection gives me no real satisfaction. There's nothing in that fact upon which I can rest. But when I read, as I have been reading lately, letters written by myself as a young man 60 or 70 years ago, and when I find that then I was fully decided for Christ, that knowledge indeed rejoices my heart in my old age. 93-year-old successful person in the world, looking back, and he says, Christ called me and I walked with him in my circumstances. That's what makes me happy. Not that I made something of myself in this world. It's passing. But that, that's lasting. That's what Paul is trying to get across here. If this week was our last in this world, and you look back at your life, do you wish you had done things differently? If you have a chance, you should change those things now. Every day we live for him here is worth it eternally. So Paul says, I want you young single people to think about this. Understand the world you live in, how you have to live in it in moderation before you make this decision. He says in 32, I want you to be without care, distress, like a burden. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman, the context might be both there. The language gives us that version, both the unmarried and the virgin, care about the things of the Lord and care how they could be both in body and in spirit holy. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Again, Paul's point at the end there in 35 is that they can serve the Lord without distraction. And he's talking about married and single people. And he's saying, here's another thing you need to think about. The cares between a married person and a single person are different. He's not saying one's wrong or another's right. He's just saying they're different. You have to take this into consideration as you make your choice. The married life, the person in that, they have to care not only for the Lord, but also for a spouse. He said the single person can just care about pleasing the Lord. They're not responsible to think about a spouse because they don't have a spouse. So they're not going to be held responsible before the Lord. The person in married life has to care about the Lord and their spouse, and they have to do that obediently and responsibly and balance those two. And that's not easy. Even when you love the Lord and you have a wonderful spouse and you want to serve him, that's still a challenge for anybody. And what Paul's saying is that single life, it has its privileges and it has its dangers. He already addressed in the single life, it faces different dangers in sexual immorality and purity. The married life faces its dangers in seeking not just to serve the Lord, but we begin to seek ourselves and serving ourselves and this other person in their relationship. And I think we all know, well, there's a sad history of people who were serving the Lord and walking with him when they were single, and then a relationship comes in their life, and they begin to serve themselves 
or that other relationship and no longer care about serving the Lord. And Paul says, look, pastorally, I'm saying this for your own profit. This you will be richest when you can seek the Lord without distraction. You can do that as a married person, but you understand you have to balance two things. You could do it as a single person, too. Single people can walk away from the Lord as well. But he's saying you don't have that care. If you're married, you do it together. He says, again, I don't want to put a leash on you. I'm not trying to choke you or pull you into some commandment that I don't have for you, force you into a direction. I'm just trying to give you what's proper. I want you to be able to serve the Lord without distractions. That's his heart. So you need to think about this. If you're thinking about being married, you have to think about it. Now, 36. And this section, is a, there's a little bit of a question as to who exactly he's talking about, but I'll read down. He says, but if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and the idea there is moving into that married age, thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, he who does not give her in marriage does better. And the issue here is not in the main message, but in the specifics. Is it a picture of a father trying to decide if it's a sin to give his daughter away to be married? Or is it a picture of a guy who's engaged to a virgin and he's trying to decide, do I break off that engagement? Should I stay single or do we get married? Um, it, the language is, there's kind of issues on either side. 36, it kind of looks like the person is getting married. And then 38, it seems more like the father is given in marriages. You can actually work either scenario in here. If I had to lean one way or another, I'd probably say it's the father angle um, as to giving away a daughter in marriage, which is bigger in their culture than it is in ours, per se. But either way, Paul's main point here is clear. Singleness as a way of life and service to the Lord is great. Singleness in terms of a spiritual condition is wrong. He's not saying that. Marriage is not wrong. Notice, again, he repeats it. He does not sin. Let them marry. Paul does not want people saying, Paul said we shouldn't marry. <laughs> he, every time he's bringing that, I'm not saying it's a sin. You can get married. And he's also saying very much, hey, if you find yourself in this position and you think, holding your daughter back from being married is wronging her, give her to be married. Stop being in that situation. Nobody was putting them in that situation. Although, you do not have to. If they can remain single and they're fine with that, that's okay. You do well and the virgin does well. So, 38, he who gives in marriage does well. It's great. Let the marriage happen. He who does not give her in marriage does better. And I think what he's speaking about there in terms of how is it better to not give in marriage, the idea is, you know, we can think, well, the girl's like all angry and the dad's like, no, that's not the picture here. He already said, if you feel like you're wronging her, give her to be married. That's fine. 
This seems to be the picture of a person who's okay with that. And the father does not give in marriage. I think in terms of how he's doing better is it's, it's a greater expression of faith to just trust your daughter to the Lord alone instead of to another person there who can be an immediate help, particularly in that day and age. And that is a good thing in the Lord's eyes. So he's kind of dealt with that, and he's going to round back now, verse 39, speaking about marriage and just, again, enforce a couple things that he already said about marriage. 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So again, this is a wife, not a virgin this time, somebody who's already been married. And Paul says again, you're married till death. That's fine. If the spouse dies, she's free to marry again. Although that marriage should only be in the Lord, not just a believer, it's bigger than that, in Christ. Christ is a, a full part of the whole thing. You have his direction, his calling, all these considerations he's been talking about, those are still a part of it. The idea is that's still part of God's will for their life, although obviously also that person being a believer is important. So you're married, you're married until death. Basically, you bring a person into a covenant with yourself before the Lord Jesus, and you say, I'm going to love you with all I have for as long as I have. And that's what God calls us to do. Not with an unsafe person, because we're aiming to love God and serve God. And I, I can't marry a person whose aim is not to love God and serve God, first and foremost who hasn't heard his call, who isn't walking with him. It becomes either really a lack of faith or just an act of disobedience. And neither of those things is good in a walk with the Lord. We marry in the Lord. And I do think it's important on the other side of that coin, there's a beautiful thing about marriage in the Lord with two people who are serving the Lord together for his purposes walking in his calling, honoring him. The love that's expressed there is unique. Um, I'll just say this. This is something that blesses me about our fellowship. Sunday morning, Wednesday night, in a world where racial tensions are always something kind of heated, there's a ton of interracial marriages here that to me are always just a blessing because it's an evidence that there's something higher than what the world puts out there. There's white, black, Latino, Asian, Indian, Ukrainian, a bunch of white people who aren't all white, right? Brazilian, like a bunch of different cultures. And we see people married in our fellowship. And what they're saying is, outside of just literally dying for somebody to give your life for them, to say, in the Lord, we are going to love one another and give ourselves to do that and to love him. That's a, a high and noble expression of love. And we never worked for something like that here. It's just the work of God in human hearts because of his word. And it's a blessing to see that. And it's a blessing to see Christ being the central thing in anybody's marriage. And two believers walking together, serving the Lord together, walking in the Lord 
is a witness in this day and age. Paul talks about it very clearly. It's a picture of Christ and his church. The world needs to see it. And it's important for us to also remember that it's a blessing to have. I encourage you married folk here, if you have a Christian partner that you can walk with, walk with them, serve with them. And don't take it for granted as long as the Lord gives you. I just read this from Dalimore's book on Spurgeon and biography. Susanna Spurgeon, who's not known quite as well as her husband, wrote this actually 10 years after her husband's passing. I found this very interesting, her picture here about their marriage. She said this, I've traveled far now on life's journey, and having climbed one of the few remaining hills between earth and heaven, I stand a while on this vantage ground and look back across the country from which the Lord had led me. I can see two pilgrims treading the highway of life together, hand in hand, heart linked to heart. True, they have had rivers to ford, mountains to cross, fierce enemies to fight, and many dangers to go through. But their guide was watchful, and their deliverer unfailing. And of them it might be truly said, in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Mostly they went on their way singing, and for one of them at least, there was no greater joy than to tell others of the grace and glory of the blessed king whose land he was hastening to. And while he thus spoke, the power of the Lord was seen, and the angels rejoiced over repenting sinners. But at last they came to a place on the road where two ways met. And here, amidst the terrors of a storm such as they had never before encountered, they parted company, the one being caught up to the invisible glory and the other, battered and bruised by the awful tempest, henceforth toiling along the road, alone. But the goodness and mercy for which so many years had followed the two travelers did not leave the solitary one. Rather, did the tenderness of the Lord lead on softly and choose green pastures for tired feet and still waters of solace and refreshment for his trembling child. We only get so much time that he gives us together. If God has given you a path to walk with someone else and two roads haven't split yet, you should be thankful for that, that you can walk in the Lord with someone. Go on your way rejoicing. Bless him for it. We should. Paul's certainly not saying anything negative about that. He's saying, hey, if we're bound, we're bound as long as we live. If one member dies, as in the glory, the other's free to marry who they wish, only in the Lord. Because a marriage in the Lord is a blessed thing. Blesses God's heart. It's a witness in the world. It's a blessing to those who are involved in it. And he finishes saying, She's happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, because Paul knew, like Susanna Spurgeon said, the goodness and mercy that brought them together wouldn't leave her when she traveled on her own. And he said, I think I also have the Spirit of God. 
That may be a little ironic. The people in Corinth were thinking they were quite wise and filled with the Spirit. And this might have not been the uh, pastoral input or consideration they thought they would get from him. But he says, I think I'm also led by the Spirit and putting these things in front of you for you to think about. So certainly for all of us, the exhortation to walk with God where he has us is important, not wait for something special to happen. For those of us who are not married here, important considerations for you to think about. Nobody can throw a leash around your neck and tell you what to do. You need to walk with God and consider these things. They're important. For those of us who are married, we should be blessed. We should walk in the Lord and thank you, thank him, thank one another as we walk down that path for the time that he gives us. So let's stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're good and you're gracious. You know every single one of us here, you know right where you called us and who you would have us to be. And Lord, we do, we want to go with you, Lord. We never want to be found on that path in any place outside of you. And as hard as it might be to walk in certain areas, Lord, we know it would be harder without you. So, Lord, be gracious to us. Give us help, Lord, where we need it to remain with you. And certainly, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us in so many ways, Lord. That you share us with one another, that you give us the family of God to walk in. And that you've given us such a great promise, Lord, of an eternity gathered as a people with you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.